Morning, everybody. Unless you want to stand through the whole sermon, you are welcome to be seated. You're welcome to stand too if you want, but hope everybody had an awesome week. It's so good to see everybody here this morning and to everybody watching online. We are grateful for your presence this morning. Uh, I want to encourage everybody who is watching online, if you have any questions or comments about the lesson, please uh, leave us comments in the comment section and we will do our best to follow up with those. And to everybody here, uh, if you find the lesson useful or encouraging in any way, I hope you'll take time to share it to your own social media platforms so that we can get the good news of Jesus out to as many people as possible. And good news is what we are going to talk about this morning. I've got some good news to share with all of you. Uh, as we start this morning, I want to remind you of something that the Apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle. And he just said this. He said, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both of them. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In other words, not everything the preacher says is revolutionary and mind-blowing and earth-shattering and the first time you've ever heard it. Sometimes our job is just to simply remind you of things that you already know. And that's what I'm going to do the next few weeks. Maybe some of the things I share are new to some of you, and I hope that you'll get excited about them and ask me questions about them so we can study about them together. But for a lot of you, these are things you already know, and I'm just reminding you of them. Because these are the things that lay a foundation for a solid relationship with our Savior. These are the things that lay a foundation for a rock-solid faith that moves us forward into kingdom work. And so I'm going to remind you of some things this morning. We sing a song. In fact, I think uh, we might be singing it after the lesson this morning. Our God is mighty to save. But sometimes I think we ask the same question. Is he likely to save me? I'm aware that people struggle with this reality. In fact, it came up in the class that Aaron was teaching this morning. We were talking about 1 John, and we're going to be talking about 1 John some this morning. I have, over my 20-plus years of ministry, been privileged to have a lot of great conversations with God's people. And over time, there are themes that tend to repeat themselves, things that weigh heavy on people's hearts and on their minds. And one of the things I've seen consistently as I work with people is this constant nagging they have in the back of their mind regarding their own salvation, their own relationship with Jesus. Yes, God is powerful. Yes, God is mighty to save. Yes, Jesus has accomplished salvation for mankind. But when I think about my own brokenness and my own weaknesses and my own uh, shortcomings and my own tendency to give in to sin far too often, I struggle with this reality. Does he want to save me? And can he save me? And will he save me? And there's this tendency that Christians have to let go of their confidence and give way to fear instead. And I want to tackle that head on this morning by reminding you of some things. God is mighty to save, and he's not just likely to save you. He is desiring to save you. And I want to remind you of that this morning. In Psalm chapter 51, or the 51st Psalm, if you want to turn over there with me, and I hope you will follow along. We're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures this morning. I trust that if I see you in your phone, you're using your Bible app. <laughs> psalm 51 is a great psalm. It's the psalm that David pens in reaction to the conversation he has with Nathan the prophet. David has sinned, and he has sinned greatly. He has committed adultery, and he has given way to murder in his sin with Bathsheba. God sends Nathan to confront him regarding that, and it brings about a change in David's heart. And David is writing his reaction to all of that. And in the 51st Psalm, I'm just going to read 
the psalm to you this morning. It says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We see grace taking root in David's heart and bringing him to repentance because that's what the goodness of God does. It brings us to repentance. And so as grace takes root in David's heart and David is confronted with his own sin and and what a mighty sin it was, as he's confronted and maybe even overwhelmed by the nature of that sin in his own life, he is coming to terms with his own brokenness and he's leaning more fully into the grace and mercy of God and he's asking God for something to remove the weight of that sin from his heart in his life. And so he says, wash me thoroughly, in verse 2, from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and I want you to listen to this line carefully, my sin is ever before me. Have you ever felt like that? So overwhelmed by the reality of your own sinfulness that you feel like your sin is just right in front of you all the time. It's not going anywhere. It's just always firmly planted Right, not in the back of your mind, but at the forefront of your mind, so that you're reminded by it all the time. David is confronted with this reality as he realizes the weight of what he's done, how he's ruined lives. But he realizes that the ability to relieve him from the weight of that sin is a gift that belongs only to the Father. And so he appeals to the Father in his love and mercy. I know my transgressions. I am aware of my sin, and it is before me always. Then he goes on in verse 4, he says, Against you, and you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's just so overwhelmed by his sin. He's taking poetic license here to illustrate the fact that I feel like I've been sinful from the first breath I took. That's how overwhelmed I am by my own sinfulness. But he goes on. He says, Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David is walking through the process that should be at work in all of our lives as we are confronted with our own sin, but grace takes hold of our own hearts giving way to repentance that when we plead with God to relieve us from that sin, we know that he will. And all of a sudden, the weight and the grief of that sin gives way to something much more powerful, which is what? Joy. Grief gives way to joy. We're no longer carrying the burden of sin, but we realize that we've been freed from that burden. And David is asking God to make that a reality in his own life. Take this burden of sin away from me, God, so that I can find the joy that I once had in your salvation. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, have you been there in your life? Where the only thing you wanted, and the thing you wanted more than anything else from God, was for him to do that to creating you a clean heart because the weight of your own sin was so burdensome that you couldn't take another step forward in faith. You needed to be relieved of that weight. And so what do we do? We plead with God, create in me, God, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. 
And then, David says, this is what will happen, God. When you take that grief away from me, and you renew that spirit within me, and you restore joy to my heart, this is what's going to happen. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing out loud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And David was a man with a broken heart because of the weight of his own sin. But he's asking God to mend that broken heart and to heal that broken spirit and to renew to him the joy of his salvation so that he could get excited again about telling other people about the salvation that he experienced in God. This is the process that should be at work in all of our lives. But what happens when the process falls apart? In other words, what happens if our guilt never gives way to joy? What happens if we get stuck in that place where all we feel is this overwhelming burden of sin and grief and guilt? And there is no joy in our salvation because all we're thinking about is that sin that's always before us. And we're only thinking about I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy of this. God doesn't want me. God doesn't love me. I can't do this good enough for him. And I've met so many Christians over the years that that describes them perfectly. And I've been in that place before in my own walk with Christ. So overwhelmed by the burden of my own sin that I had just given up on telling anyone anything. Because why would I be excited about telling others if I'm so overwhelmed by my own grief? Maybe some of you can relate to that. And I'm assuming some of you here this morning are stuck in that same broken process because I know so many Christians are. And so this lesson is for you this morning. If you are carrying that burden of guilt because of your own sinfulness and you're not sure how to step forward in faith, this lesson is for you. What if our guilt never gives way to joy? Paul describes that reality in Romans chapter 7. I hope you'll turn over there with me if you would. Romans chapter 7, it's a powerful passage. And starting in verse 14, Paul says this. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. Anybody feel like that ever? You ever feel like uh, somebody watching someone else do something as you do something dumb? Like you're outside your body watching a play-by-play of some other moron doing something dumb in life, and you're like, how could this be me? But here it is, right? Husbands, you've probably experienced this before. As something comes out of your mouth towards your wife, and in real time you're thinking, don't do that, dummy. And it comes out anyway, right? Okay. Paul's describing that reality. I don't even understand the things that I'm doing sometimes. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This is what being a sinner is like. Not understanding your own actions. I desire to do good, but I don't always do good. Why am I doing the very things that I hate doing? What a miserable way to exist. Verse 16, he says, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Can you relate to any of this? I know you can. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he just says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And what I'm saying is, if the process we see at work in David's life in Psalm 51 doesn't complete its cycle in our own lives, then this is where we get stuck. We get stuck in this wretched man that I am phase, where this is my only reality, is I'm stuck as a captive to sin, not understanding what's happening in my own life and not sure who could possibly relieve me from the grief and the guilt that I deal with every day. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But there's good news, right? Paul's telling the story of good news in the book of Romans, is he not? And so this is where he goes with this. The very next statement is the best of news, where he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is salvation in Jesus, even from our own hearts. Even from the guilt that likes to camp itself in our heart and weighs so heavy on us. He can save us even from that. In other words, Jesus doesn't just save us from our sin. He saves us from the ugly effects of sin in our lives, specifically the way that sin handicaps us and chains us down and keeps us from moving forward in faith with a good conscience. He can save us even from that. Now, we'll get back to what he says in the next chapter in just a few minutes. But before we get there, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. I didn't even say it yet in your amen. Thank you. <laughs> I, I got to tell you a story, right? So I was baptized into Christ as a junior in high school. I grew up in a Christian family. I'd heard baptism preached I don't know how many times. And my thought process was something like this. And, and again, maybe you can relate. Maybe some of you young guys can relate right now. I know I need to be baptized, but I have to wait until I've sorted everything out because it i got to wait until that point where I'm finally spiritually mature enough that once I'm baptized, i got to come up out of that water sinless and remain sinless forever. In other words, i got to wait until I'm ready to not screw up again before I can put Christ on in baptism, right? And so I had this kind of intellectual grasp of what baptism was, but my heart was very confused about it. And I can remember going to a youth group in the small town I was in with a girl I was dating at the time. Every time I tell this story, i got to remind Everybody, don't tell Robin that I ever dated anyone before her, okay? She, she doesn't like hearing that. Uh, girl I dated at the time, went to this, this youth group. There were kids I went to school with, and, I, and I, I enjoyed it, right? But we started getting in these heated conversations, and I remember an argument one night, and I said, why don't you guys ever talk about baptism? She's like, well, what are you talking about? And so, you know, as ignorant as I was in the Scripture at the time, I, I got my study Bible out, and I went to the concordance in the back, and I looked for bees, okay, baptism. Look at all these verses that talk about baptism. Even Jesus was baptized. How can you not be baptized? And I started getting really preachy at her, right? And finally, I can remember. She said, hold on a second. She said, when were you baptized? And I went, ah. And it made me think. And I can remember like two or three in the morning calling my minister at the time. Baxter, if you ever listen to this, thank you, buddy. Woke him up in the middle of the night. It was a Saturday night. And I said, tomorrow morning, I need to put Christ on in baptism. But then... 
my, my ridiculous heart got a hold of me again. And I can remember, I don't know, a week or two later, sitting in bed at night, reflecting on a way that I had talked to a classmate in school, and overwhelmed by guilt again, and thinking, I screwed this whole thing up, didn't I? I wasn't ready because I just put Christ on a baptism two weeks ago, and here I am acting like a fool. I I thought I was supposed to be free from sin after this, but here I am sinning again. And anyway, guilt got a hold of me, and I can just remember sitting in bed, and there was a a study Bible that an uncle of mine had given me, and I opened it up, and I didn't know where to go. And I found 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. I'm sure I had heard the verse before. I'm sure I had read the verse before, but this was the first time in my life that I discovered this verse when it started to speak to me in a way that made sense. And this is what John says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. But in that moment as a young man, I knew no such thing. I sat there in fear and trembling, wondering how ashamed God would be of me if he sent Jesus back at that moment, knowing what I had done that day. But here he is talking about this knowledge we can have, that we can know that we have eternal life. And this is the confidence, he says. Confidence. What a novel idea in the life of a Christian, that we could have confidence in our own salvation. Again, that was something I was not aware of. And yet here John is practically screaming at me through this verse. You can have confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. John loves this word confidence. You know who else loves it is the the author of the book of Hebrews. We'll save that for another lesson. But John loves this word confidence, and he uses it repeatedly in this letter. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, listen to what he's saying, when he appears. And when he appears, what is he doing? Where is he going to take us? He's going to take us home. When he appears to gather up those who are his and take us home to be with him forever, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I'm convinced that as John writes this, he has Genesis chapter 3 in the back of his mind. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, the serpent deceives Eve and she eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then she convinces Adam to do the same. And suddenly they're both aware of what? What are they aware of? Their sin. And God is walking in the garden in the afternoon. And he can't find them. And he calls out to them. And finally they show up and he says, where were you? And they said, we heard the sound of you. And we, you remember what they said? We hid ourselves. Because we were afraid. Try to convince me that John's not thinking about that when he writes this passage. Then when Jesus appears to take us home, we're not like Adam and Eve, so confronted by our own sinfulness that we're terrified of his presence and the only thing we can do is hide. We're not going to shrink back from him when he comes to take us home. We can stand there waiting for him, confident that he has come not to punish us, but to redeem us. And what a liberating thought for those like me who struggle with sin that we can have confidence in his coming. And then he says this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, and this is where the title of my lesson comes from. And just real quick, you notice in, in brackets there, I've got NIV. 
When I preach, I'm almost always preaching from the English Standard Version. I just put that there so you know that if I ever use another translation, uh, I'll, I'll let you know what it is. But this is from the NIV, and I like the way it's worded here. It says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Again, I think he's got the garden in the back of his mind. How our hearts can be at rest in his presence. If Christ came today and stood in front of you, would you be glad to receive him or terrified of his presence? He says, this is how we can put our hearts at rest. We can calm our own hearts, the things which are the best in the world at condemning us, our own hearts sometimes. This is how we can calm our hearts. If our hearts condemn us, we know, listen to what he says, that God is greater than our hearts. You listening to what John says? If you're sitting here this morning and grief has burdened you because of your own sinfulness and your heart is loudly condemning you, listen to what John says. God is greater than our hearts. When our hearts convince us that we should shrink at his appearing, he is greater than that and he can give us boldness and confidence that when he comes to take us home, he's coming to redeem us. And he knows everything. And some people are reading, well, yeah, now I'm back to being scared because he knows everything I did. But that's the point. He knows everything you did. And he sent his son to die on your behalf. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, that he died for us when we were not just helpless, but enemies of the cross. He's willing to die for his enemies. Then what will he do for his children? 1 John chapter 3 Continue, verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We can know we have eternal life and we can have confidence in his presence. And I'm reading these things as a young man and I'm thinking, that's what I want more than anything, is just to know that I'm safe in his arms. Just to know that however badly I screw this up, tomorrow he hasn't turned his back on me. I'm still safe in his arms. And I've struggled with this my whole life. And if you have too, then this lesson is for you. Listen to this. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And if your heart does condemn you, Jesus is bigger than your hearts and God is greater than your hearts. And then he says this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. By this, love is perfected with us. And this goes, again, right along with what Aaron's been teaching, right? And he and I did not collaborate. Mediocre minds think alike. Right, brother? <laughs> by this is love. By this is love perfected within us. So that we may have confidence, specifically when? For the day of judgment. We can know where we stand before him when he returns to take us home. We can have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now listen to this, okay? There is no fear in love. But perfect love does what to fear? It casts it out. Perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear has to do with punishment and perfect love casts out Fear. What does that mean? Now, I know this is kind of a goofy backwards way of articulating this, but bear with me. Fear brings with it some of the very things that it fears. Punishment. In other words, if we live in fear, it's like we're already experiencing the thing that we're afraid of. 
We've already allowed it to take root in our lives, and before it even manifests itself, it's like it's already here because we're living in, in fear of it. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So if you live in fear of God's punishment, instead of living in joyful expectation of his redemption, then you're living as if he's already in the act of punishing you. And what happens when we live like that? It's like I said before, it handicaps us. It chains us to the ground. It doesn't press us forward. It doesn't allow us to do what David did and say, wash me so that I can sing your praises. It doesn't make us want to talk about redemption. It just binds us up in fear and we don't do anything then. We just sit around scared. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, help me out here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that what happens? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know what verse 17 says? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why did Jesus take on flesh? Why did he do that? So that the day of judgment we could stand before him and see he could say, ha, I got you. I caught you in the act. Here's everything wrong you ever did. Now shoo because you don't deserve me. Is that why he came? Or did he come to redeem us and bring us home and make a place for us with him forever? Did Jesus come to condemn the world or to save the world? He came to save the world. Why do we struggle then so much with that idea? God is mighty to save, but is he likely to save me? I told you we'd pick up in Romans chapter 8. So after chapter 7, when he ends with that terrible thing, wretched man that I am, who's going to save me? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. The very next verse, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can we live in fear of judgment if we are in Christ when there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ? When we give way to fear, we are not listening to the words of the Father. We are listening to the words of our own broken hearts. Listen to the words of the Father. Listen to the words of Paul here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says later on in that same chapter. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that term of endearment kids would call their dads. We don't live in terrifying expectation of judgment any longer if we are in Christ. We live in hopeful expectation of our Father who is coming to take us home to be with Him forever. And we cry out to that good and loving Father, Abba, Father. God is not an abusive Father. We don't have to cower at His presence. We don't have to live in fear of what He's going to do to us next because we messed up. This is not the God of Scriptures. The God of Scriptures is the God that we get to call Father. <clears throat> trying to teach our daughter Paisley how to swim right now. She has a 
a, a legitimate fear of water. And she kind of inherited that from our families. I think it runs in, in both of our families. But she's terrified of water. And so the place we're running now has a, a, a pool in the commons area. And so I've been taking her as much as I can. We've got her arm floaties. We've got her a donut. we got her all the stuff, right, to make her feel safe. But as I take her through the pool, I'm holding on to her, right? And I'm trying to get her more comfortable, you know, in the water a little bit more every time. But the point of me telling you this story is this. She cannot be comfortable in the water no matter how tight I'm hanging on to her because she's convinced that my grip isn't strong enough, right? In the back of her head, I'm going to let go of her. And I just keep telling her the same thing, the same thing over and over. I have you, I'm not going to let go. I have you, I'm not going to let go. I have you, I'm not going to let go, but I can feel her body tensing up. She's terrified that I'm going to let go of her, and what will happen to her if I do? If she would just listen to the words of her father, she would know that she's safe. But she's not. She's listening to the fear that resides in her heart. I just want her to know how freeing it is to enjoy water. But instead, she's gripped with fear. If she would only listen to me. And I have a feeling God's looking down at those of us who are gripped by fear still and just saying the exact same thing. Won't you just listen to me and what I'm telling you? And so I'm asking you this morning, will you just listen to the words of your father? John chapter 10. Would you turn over there with me? John chapter 10. And I hope this fills you with confidence this morning. John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. This is conversation Jesus has with his disciples. It says, at that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly, as if he hadn't done that already, right? Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Will you listen to the words of your Father this morning? Paisley's convinced I'm about to drop her at any moment. And if your relationship with God is like that this morning, where you feel totally, totally at risk in your salvation, because you think God's about to drop you at any second, will you just listen to his words this morning? No one is going to snatch you out of his hand. God does not have a tenuous grip on you. He's got a hold of you firmly with both hands, and he's not letting go. So what do we do with all of that information? Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Now, Paul's talking about things that he had just said, but let me ask the same question based on everything we just read together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against us? And sometimes this thing we struggle with the most is what our heart is saying about us, right? Even when our heart has a charge against us, God is greater than our heart. So who will bring a charge against us? It is God who justifies. Who is left to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says in verse 37, which was read beforehand, before the lesson, listen, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. If you don't feel like a conqueror this morning, I hope this lesson has changed your mind. You are a conqueror, but not through your own might, not through your own strength, not through your own determination. We are more than conquerors, through whom? Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I've just got two questions for you as we wrap up the lesson this morning. Number one has to do with everything we just read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, where? In Christ Jesus. And so, question number one this morning as you reflect on all of this, is are you in Christ Jesus? If you have put Christ on in baptism, and you are in Christ Jesus, then let your hearts be at ease, and have confidence before the throne of your Father, knowing that He has got a hold of you. If you're not in Christ then that guilt that you're feeling is the Spirit working on you, trying to bring you to repentance so that you will put Christ on in baptism and give your life to Him. And we extend that invitation this morning. If you are burdened by the guilt of your own sin and you're not sure how to get rid of that, let's talk. Let's talk and let's pray. And let's talk about the waters of baptism. So that's question number one. Are you in Christ Jesus? Question number two is pointing us to next week's lesson, and it's this. What do we do with all of this information? If we can be so certain of our salvation in Christ, then how do we react to that? Do we just sit around doing nothing? And spoiler alert, if you read the book of Acts, do we read about a church who sat around doing nothing? No, we read about a church who did what? Turned the world upside down. That's what they were literally accused of. What empowered them to do that? And we're going to try to flesh that out next week. And so I want you to think about this, looking forward to next week's lesson. What is the relationship between God's grace, the thing that saves us, our faith, our reaction to that, and then the things that we do, our good works? How do those three ideas play off each other? And what do we do knowing that we can rest secure in God's love and salvation? And so I invite you back next week as we think about that critically together. Family, listen. God loves you. God loves you. He doesn't want you to shrink back like Adam and Eve did in the garden at his presence. And if you're thinking to yourself, if he came right now, I'd be terrified. Oh boy. Let's do something about that. What do you need from the church this morning?
What do you need as you reflect on God's love and goodness and mercy? If you have not given your life over to him, if you have not confessed him as Lord and Savior, if you've not repented of your sins, and if you've not put him on in baptism yet, let's do that today, this morning. The waters of baptism stand ready. Look, water, what prevents you from being baptized this morning? If you need anything from us, we stand here to serve you. Let's stand and let's sing this next song. And as we do that, if there is any need in your life, please take advantage of this opportunity. Come forward. Let's stand and sing together. We are your church. We need your power in us. We seek your kingdom first. We hunger and we thirst. Refuse to waste our lives. For you're our joy and prize. To see the captive's hearts released. The hurt, the sick, the poor at peace. We lay down our lives for heaven's cause. We are your church. We pray revive this earth. Build your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. Set your church on fire, win this nation back, change the atmosphere, build your kingdom here, we pray.